Du lytter til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Jeg hedder Lise Bak Hansen, og nu skal du til at lytte til anden del af samtalen mellem den britiske journalist, skribent og tv-vært Caitlin Moran og den danske journalist Johanne Mygin. Vi havde besøg af Moran her i Den Sorte Diamant til at fortælle om sin dengang nyeste bog, Kunsten at være en kvinde. Hvis ikke du hører det første del endnu, så kan du stoppe op i podcasten og finde første del i din podcast-app. Rigtig god fornøjelse. Maybe we should talk a bit about like sweet feminist men, because like when I had to interview, I put it on Facebook. What what should I ask her? Give me some questions. And there was quite uh, there was a few kind of like gay women who said like, could you please ask her if she's just a little bit into women because I I'm, I quite have a crush on her. Oh so. bless! <laughs> Hook me up. Um, <laughs> they might come yeah, no. afterwards. <laughs> um, no, absolutely no. Um, I've um, you know I, I I've dabbled on all sides of. <laughs> I mean, basically, I'm out for whatever I can get. So I have <laughs> I have never. <laughs> I have never really drawn any rules. If someone's upright at one o'clock in the morning and we're still making eye contact, I have I have been there with them. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. No. Um, but 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 one of the things that made me sad about I've got to do this big debate next month in uh, in Canada. Apparently, it's this huge thing called the Monk Debate, and the topic is um, Are men obsolete? And it's going to be me and Camille Parlier um, arguing opposite Maureen O'Dowd and someone who I can't remember. And Maureen O'Dowd and the person who I can't remember, which is really bad, um, uh, are saying that men are obsolete. And me and Camille Parlier are saying that they're not. Um, because, I, first of all, I mean, all, uh, you know, my, my biggest rule for, for humanity, um, other than are you buying around right now, um, is, is, is this polite? And I just don't think it would ever be polite to say to men, first of all, you can't be a feminist. And then on top of that to say, and we want you to be wiped off the face of this earth and the women must now rise. Because I remember how upset I was when men were doing that to us. And, you know, I, d- I don't want to reverse that kind of thing. You are kind of like a really famous qu- quote about like, are you a feminist? Do you have a vagina? Do you want to be a, in charge of it? Isn't yes. that really excluding for men? Oh, good. Well, I mean, they could have a vagina whenever they wanted. Um, <laughs> they, can, they, can, they can certainly have mine if they're nice feminist boys. Um, um, i should point out this is all for show. I've been with my husband for 18 years. I mean, the last time I actually went out and got laid is, uh, you know, it's neither here nor there. But in theory, I would have sex with any man <laughs> who was a strident feminist. Um, well, I mean, with, with that, with that, you know, with that quote, it was just a very simple way of saying to women, basically, if you're a woman, you are a feminist. The big rant that I do, sort of, that um, the reason why I wrote the book is because when I would go for big nights out um, after two drinks, I would be at the bar and a younger woman would be there, and within 20 minutes, I'd start talking to them about feminism because that's what I do, and um, and they would almost always go, well, I'm not a feminist. Uh, you know, they're really angry and they hate men and they're really shouty, and um, I'd go, hang on, love. Uh, let's go outside so I can smoke. This is going to take a while. And we go outside, and I go, okay, let's just get a couple of things clear here. So you didn't go to school then. You weren't educated equally to boys. And and then after you hadn't been to school, you then didn't go to university and get equally educated equally to boys. And then after you left university, you didn't go to a job where, you know, 
theoretically you at least you should have been paid equally to men and then you put the money into your bank account and not into that of your husband who by the way owns you like a chattel you're not an independent person he's legally responsible for you and if he wanted to he could put you in a mental asylum if he wanted to um, and then on top of that you know if, you, if you'd ever been sexually assaulted or raped that wouldn't be a crime that that guy would walk free and you would never go and press charges and then finally on top of all of that you've never voted you, you went you went and handed in your vote back to Parliament because if you did do all of that and that was your life, then yes, you are not a feminist. But if the reverse of all that is true, and you lived a life with education and equality and, you know, and, you know, and, and equal rights and legal rights in the eyes of the law, and you voted, then I'm here to tell you, you are a feminist. You've lived a feminist life your entire fucking life. And the reason that you have that life is because other feminists came before you and made that world nice for you. So the thing that you need to do is say, I'm a feminist and be grateful for that. You know, Just the one thing you need to do is say, thank you for that. And, and, and do they eat that? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, it, the nights ended quite sourly. And, um, and, 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 you know, I was missing out on valuable time on the dance floor when they were playing Lady Gaga. So after a while, I thought I would put this in a book instead um, and, and just simply throw it at people in, in nightclubs who say they're not feminists. <laughs> But going back to your really nice husband, apparently, because yes. your book is, a, is quite a love declaration to him. Do you yeah. think it's difficult to be married to a feminist? Because my husband sometimes thinks so. Really? Yeah. In what way? Yeah. Because I'm always nagging him to kind of like clean up and be equal and do all kinds of things. That's, really? Yeah. Oh, and God. say, yeah. You're going to hate me. Um, he, uh, I, I just married the nicest person. Well, not that your husband isn't nice. This is a fucking minefield, isn't it? Um, okay, maybe it's best to say I married the guiltiest man who ever lived, or maybe the scaredest man who ever lived. I and don't how, know what. How did you make him so guilty? He was just, he was just born that way, as Gargoyle oh, would put it. He was just born. <laughs> Just born wearing a cardigan, wanting to make a pie. Um, and the thing is, <laughs> the thing is that like everything. And do, you turn, do you get turned on by somebody like that? Yes. <laughs> What? Do do I get turned on by someone who thinks I'm amazing and cooks for me and looks after me and and yeah and and is in a fantastic lay? Yes, very much so. Yes, he is. He's a full-on package. The thing is, in the beginning though, in our relationship, kind of everything that I had been told in literature and in magazines um, had, had set me up really badly because my husband was not romantic at all, and uh, and and this made me very angry with him and made me think that we should not maybe go out with each other. For instance, the first time he went away, uh, the first present he bought back for me was you know in toilets here in ladies' toilets they have those bags that often have a picture of a pretty lady on that you're supposed to put your sanitary towel in. Do they have them here? Mm -hmm. You're kind of supposed to hide your bad things in them and put them in the bin of shame. Um, well, he'd, he'd got one of those bags and uh, he came back from a, a trip and he came back and I've got you a present and he got one of those bags and I opened it up thinking maybe at least there's a chocolate in there and it was just full of gravel, just stones um, from the garden and he was just like, yeah, just, I just found some pretty stones in the garden and I put them in the bag of shame and I've given it to you. And I was like... Everything I've ever read suggests there should be some flowers now, or maybe some lingerie. Where fucking bag with some gravel in it. And, um, and similarly, when he proposed, we'd kind of we bought the engagement ring and we went down onto the beach. And you know, the sun was going down. And I was like, "You'll propose to me now, won't you?" And he didn't. And then the moon came out, and I thought, "You'll propose to me now," and he didn't. And then the, the, the first shooting star shot across the sky, and I was like, "You'll propose to me now." And also, I'm getting quite cold. Hurry up! And uh, he didn't. And then he waited until um, I had to um, uh, go and do a wee behind um, some rocks on the beach because I was bursting for the toilet. And at the po exact point as I was squatting, he just bent down and went, "Will you marry me?" <laughs> 
and again, I felt quite angry at the time. I was like, this should have been romantic. But his absolute refusal to ever treat me like a princess, to treat me like a girl, it was always just like, you are another human being who I, who I really like to hang out with and find very amusing, and I like to go to bed with, and that is the absolute basis of our relationship. So for 10 years of resentment, I was like, but I'll never get to feel like a princess. When do I get to feel like a princess? Now I'm so glad that I never felt like a princess, because everything that I understand is the princess phase ends, and then you have to reconfigure your relationship. But we never had to do that. We were always just two mates who had sex, and it's worked out very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in Denmark at the moment, Everybody is talking about that actually the people who have the problem is the men because they kind of like commit suicide and they are homeless and and actually they're maybe kind of like losing out in some way. Do you have that discussion in England about men being the real losers? Well, I think I think that the big thing here is that what we keep having there are certain subjects that are seen as a problem of feminism. Uh, like for instance, childcare is seen as a problem of feminism. You know, rape is seen as a problem of feminism. Female genital mutilation. We kind of you know, you know equal pay. These are all seen as problem. You know, things that feminism needs to sort out. And I don't believe in there being any such thing as a problem of feminism. Because with all these things, these are problems of humanity. The idea that we're chopping these things up, because if anything is hobbling 52% of the world, if anything is stopping us from being able to contribute everything that we can to the world and you know, to raise our children properly, this is going to fuck up the whole world, not just women. You know, we all live quite near to each other. You know, it's not like women do come from Mars and men do come from Venus. If that was actually true, then, you know, then there would be more of a basis for there being problems of feminism and problems of masculinity. But we, we all live next door to each other. You know, we're all living in the same house. We're all in the same office. And so, you know, when either side has a problem, we can't go, that's a problem for men or that's a problem for women. We just need to go, this is a problem of humanity. And th you know, this is why so many things get sectioned off into different parts of the media or into different parts of academia or to different parts of government. And it's to our detriment. You know, what we need to do is just go, just stop saying that there are problems that are specific to one sex and go, these are the problems of humanity. And it's the same with all equality. I mean, this is the whole thing about kind of, you know, Marxist feminism. Um, you know, this is equality across the board for people of colour, for people, you know, of disability, you know, for trans, for the trans community. Because if you look at a map of the world, um, the, and, and all the troubled parts are marked in red, um, almost without exception, the places that have the most war, that have the most poverty, that have the worst um, infant mortality, these are the places where there's the least equality, where, you know, to, to be gay is, is illegal or will be horribly punished, where women aren't given the vote or are massively uh, misused in the community, where disabled people are just left in spare rooms and left to rot. Uh, you know, where, you know, the idea of you even being transsexual is just, you know, you just, you would never, you would keep that a secret within your family for the rest of your life, and and you just sort of look at this map of trouble, and it overlays, you know, with trouble and poverty and war, and it overlays with all the places that are the least equal, and you go, well, that's because. The greatest resource that any country has isn't uranium or oil or gold. It's brains. You know, it's people. And in any country where, you know, 52% or more of the population is being kept out of business and parliament, uh, you know, and having an equal say in the, in, the, in, in the running of that country, that country is simply more stupid. These are the stupid, the unequal countries are the stupid countries. They have to be. They've got the least brains on the job. Um, and so that's why when you're talking about, you know, problems that are, you know, problems of like, you know, racism or, or you know, or, or of sexuality or feminism or stuff, we need to, you know, this is the whole point of kind of, you know, the sort of that Marxist community. You just kind of go, no, these are all the problems of oppressed people. These are, you know, these are all the problems of marginalized people. And it does us all good to all band together because it, all together we can make the world a better place. But do you think then it's possible to kind of like kindly convince the men that they should just give the power? back and, and share with us? Well, well, well first of all, generally, uh, you know, in terms of... Because uh, there's two things, isn't there? There's power and then there's men. 
And, and when we talk about feminism, we tend to talk about, um, you know, why aren't the men helping feminism? But then there's a, a whole load of kind of men who, who would declare themselves to be feminist, who don't want to write about feminism because there are certain sections of feminists who would say, no man could ever be a feminist, you're not allowed to join in. And I think a lot of men are scared to say, I'd like to help with the feminist cause. You know, I can remember very much in the 80s, kind of, you know, in our country, sort of, if you turned up at like the feminist unions at universities, the women would just go, leave here if you were a man. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I felt it very important to make it clear in How to Be a Woman um, that, you know, that, that we all need to be together. Anyone who says that they are a feminist is welcome to my big feminist party. And this is the same, there are sections of the feminist community who say that, you know, if, if you're a male to female transsexual, that you could never be a feminist. And I, I can't see how that's even logical. First of all, again, it's impolite. The big rule is, are you being polite? And to exclude people from feminism is not polite. So you must join our big female party. And secondly, you know, I had an easy ride being a woman. I was just, you know, I was born this way. Someone who's made the commitment to turn themselves in the, the pain and the problems, the humiliation and the bravery that it takes to turn from a man into a woman, to change your body from a male body into a female body, absolutely is entitled to call themselves a woman. You know, you have proved it far more than I have, love. So do you think... <laughs> So do you think when there's not more men calling themselves feminists, it's just because they're kind of like afraid that we won't let them? Well, I think a lot of them are. I think a lot of, in the same way that, you know, I would be, you know, or until very recently, I would have been very reluctant to, you know, in my journalism, wade into a conversation about racism um, because I would just think, well, I don't want to speak for the people whose problem this is you know, kind of like let you tell your stories, kind of, you know, but then you start realizing, you know, it takes some more research and you need to go out there and find more stuff out. But any problem that you see out there is a problem for humanity. And I think women, you know, I think, I think it's a very important thing that we do now, you know, in feminism is to encourage men to, to, to join the feminist movement and, and see what they can do because the men, while it's still just basically, if, if feminism is only ever women going, this isn't right and we need to change it, then that necessarily means that we're always the ones going, complaining about stuff, essentially complaining about stuff and whining about stuff from a position of not having any power. And that is why, you know, it turns so many people off because we just look like whining, angry losers. But do you truly believe that, that the world would be nicer and greater for men as well if women had more power and we were more equal? Yeah, because we need more ideas in the pot. I mean, you know, I don't think there's many people that can have seen what's happened in the economies of, you know, particularly sort of like Europe and, and the first world over the last couple of years and have gone, yes, the fact that this world is generally run by white, straight, able-bodied men, uh, we've definitely got all the best ideas in the pot there. You are, you are absolutely all functioning on all the ideas we could possibly have and things are going swimmingly right now. This is great, you know? You just look at that and go, we really ne seriously need to look at, you know, a different way of doing stuff. And one of the things that I was writing about last week is one of the things I think we need to get rid of is party politics. Like, kind of, again, I don't know what the situation is here, but generally across the first world, you find that younger generations just have that thing of whoever you vote for, the government gets in, everything kind of sort of centers, it coalesces into center-right politics, people get angry about the infighting, it's all politicking. And how we've always run party politics before is that it's on the basis of emotion. We kind of have an emotional tie either to the left or to the right or to, or to the center. Um, but that's useless now. What I'd like to do is just is, is scrap the party system and go, let's look at metadata. Let's look at all the different governmental systems in the world, left, right, and center, and see which of their policies worked. If you coalesce all this data together, which one of them were the more functional, and then, and then form a party that's around what's actually been proven to work. I suspect as a lefty socialist, I would find some of my socialist principles don't actually work that well in certain areas of policy. Um, but I suspect there'd be some right-wing people who would find that some of their 
favourite theories don't work well in other areas of policy. But we could bring all these things together and, and change something, but bring it based on information. fighting men against women, black against white, exactly. and so on? No, it's, I mean, this is the thing, like, you know, as, you know, uh, you know as, as Britain's third most famous funny feminist with big hair, um, I, I, I get to go on a lot of TV shows and we talk about feminism, and the, and the, the setup is always the same. You go onto a show and everyone talks for a couple of minutes, and, but the, what they always do is have someone who believes in feminism and someone who doesn't believe in feminism, and they have a fight for three minutes and that's the end. And it's the same with every news show. There's kind of like someone who's in favour of something and someone who's against something, and they fight. And I think that's a very male thing. And one of the things that was most commented on in Britain last year, um, most of, there's been loads of surveys about the amount of disproportionate amount of men on, um, uh, in, in the, who write the news and uh, appear on radio and television. It's something like 97% of all the people that we have on our big news show, Newsnight, are men. And um, there was one Christmas where clearly all the men had gone on holiday, had gone skiing. And um, there was one episode that was solely presented by and included women, and there was one token man. And it was a completely different show. For, for, for starters, when the uh, presenter threw to the first expert, they were talking about the economy, um, she just went, I just want to say how amazing it is that we have this other economist on the show, because this was the only person who saw the 2008 crash coming up. And indeed, I want to ask you a question about what you did. So instead of it being an argument, the idea that the first person you threw to, instead of going, I've got my thing to say and I want to do my argument, was like, we need to acknowledge that this person's amazing and I need to ask you a question. And it became a discussion. I mean, I know that's such a cliched view of what it would be like, kind of, if women were in charge of things, but it just happened spontaneously within one show. And Twitter was alive with it. Facebook was all alive with it. It was talked about in the papers the next day that this amazing one day of the ladies being able to, you know, talk about the news. <laughs> Just kind of like, this is incredible. And it actually come to some conclusions by the end of it. It hadn't just been a punch and duty fight. It was, it was really quite, I felt quite emotional. But <laughs> I had had three glasses of wine by that point. <laughs> Another thing I'm always struck by when I watch the news is that there is no older women yes. at the news. And I'm thinking about your gray hair. Yes. It's not very long ago that I told my friend who got gray hair as well, color it before you go to a job interview. Because I felt she looked really radical. And afterwards, I was asking myself, what is so radical about grey hair? Why is it so radical? Well, it is nuts, isn't it? Again, I mean, I think it will be a fashion thing. I mean, the, you know, there's two things. There's the angry political response that I would have to this. And then there's also my Pollyanna-ish optimism that at a point where... I mean, for instance, like, when I look at Paul McCartney's hair, Paul McCartney's done such a bad dye job on his hair. It's like kind of... It's kind of purple, kind of mullet. It's just like... <laughs> And I just think, you know, and sort of, you know, when there's dye jobs, you know, when someone's that rich and that cool and they've still got really shit hair when it's purple <laughs> and you're 67, that at some point soon, you know, white hair will look better. Um, uh, you know, so just, I think the fashion will turn. But no, I mean, it, but it is the awful thing that kind of men are allowed to appear on television looking like wizards, you know, with hair coming in their ears, <laughs> their eyes, just kind of slumps, just kind of like, Ugh. Um, whereas women kind of, you know, you just Botox yourself out of existence and then you're removed entirely from television by the time you're like 47 tops. Again, in our country, I don't know if it's different here. Um, I mean, this, I've got a plan with this. This is not natural, by the way, sadly. It is my homage to um, Emmylou Harris and Morticia Adams, my two biggest heroines. And, um, <laughs> but, um, but my plan is that when I get, I think probably to 50, I'm going to flip reverse it overnight and this is all going to go white and that's going to be a black streak there. Um, but I'm absolutely going to rock white hair. I think it looks amazing. But why do you think we are so kind of like afraid of women looking old? 
Um, well, I think a lot of it's to do with um, to do. Well, first of all, it's you know the obvious stuff like you know, well, they're not fertile anymore if they look old. So kind of you know, we lose interest in them sexually. But it's also the fact I think that kind of like lines and wrinkles and grey hair. Um, if you think about what you what you Botox off your face or what plastic surgery removes from your face, it's. It, it, I mean, a lot of it is kind of annoyance. It's anger. It's kind of it's kind of impatience. It's stuff that says, "I've been alive longer than you. Now get out my fucking way." You know, <laughs> listen to me. Shut up. And you know, whenever women have to sort of present constantly present a youthful face, you're kind of also presenting a constantly innocent face. And uh, you know, I like the idea. You know, I mean, the one thing that makes me sad about Madonna, who I generally, you know, totally love, um, is that she didn't go hag. She didn't just turn into a massive witch. You know, it would have been amazing if Madonna had just kind of gone and turned into a crone and just kind of stood there, kind of in front of all the younger pop boys, going, "Yes, I am fully covered in wrinkles. I've got hair out to here that's grey. And you know, if, if you if you try and tell me, Madonna, what to do in the pop world, I will slap you upside the head because I am an angry old woman, and I want to go home and have my tea." Um, <laughs> I think I think it's I think you know we, we we want to remove the wisdom from our face and the fact that you know we we are impatient and older and want to get on with things. But are you getting a bit afraid now because like you're approaching 40 and then kind of like normally your star is starting to fall in the media world as a woman? Do you get afraid of getting older yourself? Well, I mean a lot of what I've done is preemptive because when the book you know when or when I first started being a journalist and then particularly when the book came off, I was offered a series of lovely photo shoots. They're always like we'll get you an amazing photographer in. Uh, you know, we'll make you look. I mean, um, we'll make you look beautiful. We'll style you, and all this kind of stuff. And it's things like, you know, I mean, again, th th this is not bitching because I could never bitch about Tina Fey if I if I tried. But love Tina Fey, 30 Rock. But what often happens if you were kind of, you know, an ugly, spectacled, fat girl, and then you become funny and lose a bit of weight? That as soon as you become in any way successful, they go. And would you like to go to the Oscars in a very beautiful dress? Would you like to appear on the front of Vanity Fair, kind of posing like this, just in a man's shirt, and we'll um, Photoshop you so you look amazing? And you fall for the kind of, yes, I will have my Cinderella moment. But then that, of course, means that a couple of years down the line, when you start looking rougher, they can kind of go, oh, she's lost it now. Whereas my, my policy has always been to constantly look rough, <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> and I hugely recommend that. Um, Never, you know, it's, it's, you know, you kind of go, well, who, who's, who, you know, it's a catch-22 situation. It's just never-ending. If you start trying to look hot at some point, you've got to continue looking hot forever, unless you want that sad thing where people went, ah, oh, you stopped looking hot about six months ago. Whereas if you never looked hot, you never have that terrible day of reckoning. And that's why I like turning up, you know, like turning up to doing things like this, you know, looking like this and doing TV looking as rough as possible. Um, I, think, I think there's an enormous amount to be said in looking quite terrible. <laughs> it keeps you safe. It's, you know, kind of, who can have a go at you? <laughs> and don't you think you could ever be tempted to kind of like just use a little Botox or something oh, at some point? Well, well, first of all, the fact that I banged on about it so endlessly means that kind of like, you know, people will be watching very carefully to see if I suddenly turn up and like, hi! Hi! <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am untouched by the needle. Um, um, secondly, uh, you know, I, I genuinely would rather spend the money on wine and cheese. Um, 
thirdly, my, it would terrify my husband. You know, I mean, it's, it's no, it's no. You know, you should never do something. You know, because because you, you know, it would please your husband. But then maybe you, you know. But then actually, you should. If you love your husband, it would terrify him. You know, it's not the only reason why you should do something. But I think it's certainly something to bear in consideration. You know, but in the same way that he's begged me never ever to, you know, to to have a Brazilian. He was like, you know, he was like, you know, obviously everyone's their own. But to my mind, when a vagina looks like that, it belongs to a child, and I should be changing its nappy. I would find it very weird to find it in your pants. Please never do that. Um. Uh, we we got we got to talk about pubic hair. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> <Of course. laughs> what's up with this fashion? You think it it is it, it's it's deeply troubling. Um, I mean, there are times where, you know, I sort of like, I, I, I'm a keen swimmer, so I've always been in changing rooms a lot. And also, I go in changing rooms a lot because I'm a woman and I go to shops. And, um, and I, there was this sad moment a couple of years ago where I was in my, uh, the changing room and I just looked around and every single fanny that I could see was smooth and pink. And, um, and I just suddenly had a moment of nostalgia, the first moment of nostalgia I'd ever had at the age of 32, just going, I remember when they looked different. I just remember when it, where everywhere you'd look, it would just look completely different. There'd be little wigs and kind of, you know, different coloured hairs everywhere. And it'd be interesting, kind of, oh, she dyes her hair. That's interesting. The colour and coughs don't match. That's interesting. Um, and, but in Britain, that's just not the case anymore. Everybody seems to wax. And, and this awful thing that kind but of, like... But that's something I don't understand. Why did that happen? Why suddenly did well, I, I everybody think it, start to wax? Well, I mean, the, 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 you know, I mean, again, I don't really do research, um, but um, but there seemed to be a massive correlation between the rise of pornography, in which everybody is waxed and suddenly everybody waxing. If you think about the only place that you see vaginas, uh, generally, uh, unless you've got a very free and easy family, um, uh, um, it tends to be in pornography and or a very free and easy workplace. Um, but uh, but it tends to be in pornography and and the fact that that we were kind of you know monkey see monkey do um, seemed to be very much what was happening there. Um, and, um, and the thing is that, that the reason that they, because uh, I was talking to a porn director, and the reason that they, um, they wax in porn films is just so you can see. Mm. Just so you can literally see what's going on. In order to shoot that area, you need to remove the hair in order to be able to do close-ups. And also for men, it, you know, it, it makes their penises look bigger. So we're doing this, we're engaged in this you know, gigantically expensive and time-consuming charade um, in, in order to fulfil an aesthetical pornography that's not useful. We don't need to see what's going on down there. You know, I mean, maybe you do, but I suspect most of the sex that you're having isn't kind of craning your head around this way and looking, <laughs> looking at what's happening while it's happening. Um, but so you know, I, I once talked to kind of like a, a school nurse who said that she actually thought it was a good idea because for a long time she was an old kind of like feminist school nurse yeah. and she'd been like trying to get women, all her girls to sit down and look themselves in the mirror and see what's beside the legs. And then she was like, but now they do because they have to shave. And she thought, it, she looked at it as liberation. Oh, well, that's quite good. I mean, that bit's good, but I think there could have been another way that we could have persuaded girls to do that without them <laughs> changing the aesthetic of what the female body looks like overnight. Um, you know, just things like, I mean, there, 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 I mean there's, there's, a, there's, a whole, there's a whole load of things. First of all, it means that if the only vaginas you see are completely hairless, obviously I know the real word's vulvas, but we, it feels weird saying that word. Um, if, the, if the only um, vaginas you see are hairless, then when you start growing hair when you're 12 or 13, you instantly go, I'm wrong. I'm, suddenly, overnight, I've got a problem. I am a problem, and I now need to solve this. And that breaks my heart. You know, it's difficult enough to go through puberty as it is, but the first sign that you have of becoming a woman is a problem. 
and you now, you know, the chances of you going to your parents and going, I now need to remove the pubic hair from my vagina are very small. So this is the first time you keep a secret. You creep away and you go and find a razor and you shave it. Or, you know, increasingly now you go to beauticians, you take your pocket money. My beautician's constantly turning away teenage girls, little teenage girls, 13 and 14 year olds who, who want to wax uh, their pubic hair. So this is it, 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 just the, the signal that this sends out to young girls. The first thing that happens to you, you've got to keep secret. Then, of course, the second thing that happens is you have periods and you have to keep that a secret as well. So suddenly the first two things that you associate, suddenly you kind of like, when I was a kid, I was just a human being and I could just do what everybody else did. As soon as I became a woman, I had to keep secrets and have problems that were costly. And then as you go on into your future life, just, the, you know, you, you, you go on into, you know, your teenage years and then, you, you know, you're starting to have sex. And just the upkeep, the, the, the way that it drives, a, a, you know, a, a, a tank through your life is insane. If you're going out on a Friday and you're managing all the hair on your body, you have to go, right, okay. I'm going to shave or wax my legs on Tuesday because I need to put the fake tan on on Wednesday, because if I put the fake tan on on Tuesday, it'll go into those little holes that you get when you wax or shave, and it'll look like I've got freckles on my legs. So, so wax legs Monday, fake tan legs Tuesday, do armpits Wednesday, why not? Um, Thursday would be the best day to, um, to uh, do my Brazilian, because then there'll be no regrowth and stuff, you know, make sure there's no stubble and stuff, but I'll leave it till Friday to do my upper lip, because I wouldn't want there to be a slight sort of, you know, hint of Hitler when I'm getting off with someone <laughs> in a nightclub. And that's a whole week of you got, you know, like the matrix, just this kind of spreadsheet comes down of when you're going to be doing the hair, which bits of hair and when and where and all this kind of stuff. And the cost, you know, it hurts. And when it grows back, it's itchy. You're walking around and scratching it. And the cost, you know, if you add up what you would spend going to a beautician or just, you know, spending on waxing and, and razors and stuff for all of your life, that's the money you should be putting in your pension pot. You know, that's the money you should be buying you a yacht. You know, and, and instead you're, you're, you're spending it on kind of keeping your, you know, keeping this hair free on the vague off chance that you might have sex on Friday, which, you know, because more often than not, it won't be. And the amount of times that I've had female friends who, because they've waxed, have just had sex with someone they don't really like that much, just to make it financially worthwhile. It's like, I have, I have now invested 30 pounds in this. I'll just do it anyway. You know, in this audience, like, you know, Denmark is, is really small. So it's kind of like, I mean, Denmark is, the population of Denmark is like half of south of London. Yes. And the feminist population in Denmark is really, really, really small. Mm -hmm. So I know that here there's at least kind of like 10 women who've been out and been like, I'm a feminist. And then all the reactions they get, they're just too bad. And they've given up. Oh, where are you? Come here. <laughs> Come with me. Because you can come and live in South London. <laughs> it's the size of Denmark, and they'll let you be a feminist there. <laughs> because I think their experience is that it's really, really provocative, and people get mean when yes. you say you're a feminist. Have you, have you experienced that? Well, no, generally no, and I've been lucky. And that is a deliberate byproduct of the way that I write. And this is, you know, I, I think there's a lot of uh, more modern, uh, not more modern feminist. There's a lot of fluffier, happier feminists like me who tend to slag off angry feminists and go, you're the enemy. There are kind of old, hardcore, angry feminists. And then there's us, and all we want to do is laugh and stuff. you know. And, uh, and I want to laugh, and I want to change the world as well. And I'm absolutely allied with the angry feminists, because I know why you're angry. Because anger comes from fear and being hurt and being constantly shat on. Um, but what, when, I, when I write, I deliberately try not to evoke an emotional response. I'm not an angry one, anyway. Because what I 
learned from a very early age, being in a very big and very angry family, is that if you say something angrily, all that people can hear is the anger, and they will respond angrily as well. People hear emotion, and they will respond emotionally. And then you're in a position where no one's listening to anybody. And I'd, I'd seen this time and time again in debates that I'd seen across all the things that interest me politically and culturally, that people with, who were absolutely saying what I believed, and who came from backgrounds absolutely identical to mine, and who I'd absolutely align myself with, were being ripped to bits simply because they were being angry. And I just went, well, I will not be angry then, you know, I, because I want people to listen to what I'm saying. This is, you know, this is how I'm going to do it. I, I, and also I can't argue, I literally can't argue, my face goes very red and I cry and I get very bad hiccups. Um, so I didn't even have the choice of being an angry feminist, I just would have been a crying feminist. And um, I thought that was probably not a good genre to invent. Um, so, so, but, but, that, that was, but that would be, the, I mean the thing is I wouldn't begin to patronise anyone who's been out there on the feminist barricades doing anything because any w woman who's out there as a feminist has got massive fucking balls you know it takes enormous balls to be a feminist in this day and age but the one thing that I've learned that you know for, has made it easier for me is to never be angry but why do you think people get so angry at the feminist why do you what why does it take so so big balls well, well a lot of it is because the feminists are angry and quite rightly so you know and, and you know without feminist anger you know sometimes you need feminist anger like you know we have to remember that a hundred years ago women were being discussed in scientific journals as having brains the size of animals you know it was kind of like Like they would not have the same capability as adult men, you know, that, you know, that they need to be looked after. Um, you know, and you needed a whole load of fucking suffragette and feminist fury to go and fight through that. And people died and people chained themselves to things. People protested, they had bombs, they were terrorists. You know, the, the only, this is again why sort of people go, oh, feminism is really boring and any kind of revolution's boring. It's like, no, this is, you know, people who want to change the world, you know, this is, this is, this is explosions and life-changing stuff and changing whole demographics of the world. So I totally understand that anger but the anger that comes back is fear because there's no no one ever gave power away anytime the power was shared it was taken and so anyone that you're trying to take power from which is men will be scared and what do scared people do they get angry anytime I hear someone angry I just go this is fear you know anger is fear heated up and speeded up and that's that's what happens in discourse and so you know these are men that don't want power taken away from them What's the meanest comment you got, like, going out as a feminist? What hurt you the most? Um, you know what, it, it was absolutely fine. The, the stuff that really upset me was, there were a couple of things that were, you know, horribly misunderstood, the worst possible things. Because if anybody says to me, like, you know, you're fat or you're unfuckable or you're ugly or, you know, all the kind of things that, you know, or, or I'm going to, you know, I've had rape threats and all this kind of stuff. None of that can upset me. You had all me. that kind oh, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, not that, you know, but, you know, kind of none of that could really upset me. The stuff that really upset me is there were a couple of things that, 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 that were said or were misinterpreted on Twitter that made it seem that, like, first of all, that, that I was in some way racist uh, and that I, secondly, that I was against transsexuals um, and those two things absolutely broke my heart because that, that, that's the word that's the worst insult you could say to me that I you know that I wouldn't want to take everyone with me uh, you know or that I had any hatred or any anger towards anyone at all and those are those are the insults that hurt me and, and uh, why most. would anybody accuse you of being a racist um, I, when I interviewed Lena Dunham from Girls, um, there was, I had no idea that in America there'd been this massive um, debate saying that, um, that she was racist for not having any women of color in the show Girls. 
And that seemed to me to show, and uh, well, first of all, it's, it's a semi-autobiographical show with the same lot of actresses she used from the last thing, and it was just a practical thing. And, you know, that's just the show she wanted to make. It's about spoilt white girls moaning about their lives in a kind of Seinfeldian way. That's the point of the whole thing. But there'd been this big debate. As all art should provoke, it's a fair enough question to ask, but it just meant on the day that I announced on Twitter that here's my interview with Lena Dunham, I think you're going to love her. Girls is an amazing show. I got loads of people uh, from America going, well, I hope you asked her why she's such a racist bitch. I hope you asked her why Girls is just a disgusting, you know, piece of privileged, you know, feminist drawbridge pulling up and stuff. And I'd never had these people before, sort of the angry intersectionists. And I didn't know what the fuck it was. And uh, I was really hungover and I was really upset that they wouldn't love my Lena Dunham and my show. <laughs> and uh, so I just went, no, because I don't give a shit if she didn't have women of colour in Girls. This is what she made. Like, kind of, not, I don't give a shit that there isn't, you know, women of colour representation in the media. Not that I don't think commissioning editors should hang their heads in shame at the, the repulsive way that the media is skewed towards, uh, towards white people. But just on that show, why are you blaming Lena Dunham for this? This is, you know, to call her a racist is horrible. Anyway, that was it. That was enough to have me still be, have people just calling me a racist piece of shit and saying that they're going to lynch me and hang me. It was a misunderstood thing on Twitter, but kind of that upsets me. Any, anything that, you know, someone could say where they wanted to rape me or I'm fat or whatever would not upset me at all. Oh. The idea that I would hate someone <laughs> would really upset me. Yeah. When, like, is that because you kind of like grew up with like seven sisters and brothers, so you're kind of like a little bit hardcore with these things? Well, just because I wouldn't care what anybody who's genuinely horrible would say. Someone who's who's clearly you know threatened by me and repulsive, I wouldn't be upset by that at all. But someone who comes from a minority background, who's always felt really hurt and upset, who would think that I was also making their day worse. Uh, you know, that's awful. You know, I, you know, I, I wouldn't. You know, I want everyone. You know, I come from the oldest sister in a big family. I just want to bring everyone along. And the idea that anyone, some you know, that some black girl in Alabama sitting there and just going and wants to read this book and then just goes, I heard on Twitter that Catelyn was a racist, so I don't want to read it anymore. That would just break my heart. And, you know, whenever those girls got in contact with me going, I'd read so much nice stuff about you, but then I heard you were a racist. Every single one of them, I followed them back and DM'd them, which is like sort of, you know, talking to them secretly on Twitter and just went, here's what happened. I promise you I'm not. Like, you know, I'm so sorry if anything I've said to upset you. That broke my heart. But, um, but apart from that, it's been fine. <laughs> but do you... <laughs> Have you ever kind of like thought like, oh no, I can't do feminism anymore. I'm just, I'm fed up. I can't do it anymore. No, because every day when I look at my girls, I just think I, it, it just increases the pressure. They're 13 and 10 now. And, and you know, they're going to go out in the world. I've been able to keep them in my lovely, fluffy world. But they're going to have to start going out there soon. And... The only way that I can make sure that they don't have awful moments where they suddenly stand there full of self-loathing going, oh my God, this world is horribly unfair and I'm completely screwed and I feel like I'm in danger, is if I change the entire world before they get out there. So <laughs> I've got... I've got... <laughs> I've got, I've got five years left. I'm on a bit of a deadline. Um, so I'll not be staying for drinks afterwards because I do have to change the whole world. But, um, but you know, that's the thing that, you know, that, that's what keeps me going. What's the thing that you most want to teach them? Because you might not change the whole world before they're yes. old enough well, to be enough. I, I wrote a comment about this recently. I'd come back from the Glastonbury Festival and I'd smoked so much that I thought I was going to die. And so I rather self-pityingly wrote this column that was a posthumous letter to my daughter to open up when after the funeral, going, here's my a piece of advice <laughs> That's melodramatic. Yes. <laughs> I didn't show it to her, I just published it in the Times. And, um, and uh, I said, you know, there's, there's several key things. Um, first of all, um, don't, uh, don't go out with a boy that you think needs to be mended or a boy that makes you feel like you should be mended. You can waste years of your life on that. 
Only be friends with the people who make you feel like you, the, you are the best you are when you're, you're most comfortable with them. Don't hang out with the people who make you feel awkward and you walk away going, I should have been cleverer. <laughs> You'll waste years of your life on them. Um, make peace with your body as soon as you can. Lie there at night and go, thanks for running around, old legs. Thanks for digesting, old tum. You know, just really appreciate your body in a way that girls don't get to. Um, and, and the other thing we do is we sit down and we watch MTV. I think, that, I think if you're a, a feminist and you're raising girls, uh, you, you know, especially with middle-class mums, they can tend to sort of go, and I'm just going to hide you from all the awful things, and we'll just ignore that that's what the world's like. But the world's there, and it's waiting for them. So, you know, we sit down and we watch MTV, and when Rihanna comes on, uh, you know, and she's sort of like, we've got a ball gag and chain on, um, instead of me going, and we won't watch MTV, I just go, oh, look at Rihanna, poor Rihanna. God. <laughs> Another video where she doesn't get to wear a lovely cardigan and a pair of trousers, like... <laughs> she must be so cold. Imagine if she was on her period that day, like, kind of. She's so rich and so powerful, and yet she keeps ending up in her pants on the floor being spanked. That's weird, isn't it, girls? How do you feel so about that? So you're kind of, like, combining MTV and conscious reasoning. Well, I think the key thing is that set feminism is not a set of rules, it's a set of tools. You know, you just need one or two things that you need to know. One you know, women are equal to men. Two, how you can tell some sexism is happening is to go, is this happening to the men? Ask yourself, are men having to deal with this kind of thing? And if the answer is no, then some sexism is happening. Um, three, be polite. You know, sort of, if you ever have any kind of qualm about how you should be sort of dealing with your political feelings and how you want to forward your political cause, just say, well, whatever I'm doing, I must do it in the politest way possible. And fifthly, uh, don't start smoking. That's not really anything to do with feminism at all, but I'm really feeling the effects. I really wouldn't recommend it. You know, I would have liked you to end reading about like how you have to stand up on a chair and shout you're a feminist, but just like a few sentences from that, oh, then God. we'll end. <laughs> Oh, God, I I've lost the thing on it. Hang on. Sing. <laughs> Fill this time by singing. Phil, Phil now, Phil. Ah, oh, I don't know where it is. Urgh. Urgh. See, I wrote the book, but I can't remember where it is. I've no idea where it is. I'm so sorry. And I well, will tell us, sorry, I can't. Why, why is that, what is it that we have to do when we want Well, I think it just, it's, just, it's just reclaiming the word feminism and reclaiming the word, uh, you know, and strident feminist as well. Don't be an apologetic one. Go right out there and say, I'm a strident feminist. And, uh, and you know, just, just, just get to the point where you realise that feminism is what you need in your life and you stand on your chair and you, because everything's more exciting if you stand on a chair while you do it. And, uh, <laughs> and you just stand on your chair and go, I am a feminist. I am a strident feminist. And, it, you know, and I did that as I... I was writing it and it made me very happy. <laughs> Great. Thank you for coming tonight. Oh, no, thank you, darling. Thank you. Du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast app. Hvis du kunne lide hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find den sorte diamant på Facebook hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.